Go ahead and have a seat. <laughs> and join me together in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, again, we do confess that everyone needs compassion. We all do. And we really want a love that's never failing. We search for it. Lord, give us your mercy. Let it fall on us. For we are not perfect people. We are sinners. That means every one of us needs forgiveness. We need the kindness of a Savior. And so we call upon you, Savior. My God, our God, who is mighty to save, the author of salvation, who rose and conquered the grave. Oh God, let all of that come freshly home to us today. Let us receive it with glad hearts as if we have received it for the first time. And if we are receiving it for the first time, let our hearts burst forth in new praise. We love you, Lord. And we love you for your unfailing love. The love with which you loved us even before we loved you. And so we give you praise. And we would meet with you now. We would hear you speak to us in your word. Come, Lord, by your spirit. Open our hearts. Open our eyes. Let us behold Jesus, we pray. In his mighty name. Amen. Amen. Let me add my word of welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. I'm Pastor T, one of the uh, three, currently three pastors of the Anacostia River Church family. On behalf of the entire church family, again, we're so glad that you're with us, singing praises to God with us and rejoicing in his grace. Uh, You see some folks in the aisles right now carrying stacks of Bibles. We're about to give our attention to the Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible and like to use one, just raise your hand and they will get one to you. Um, We're in Luke chapter 19. That's in the New Testament. Uh, When I say chapter, chapter 19, that's the big number. And when I say verse, that's a small number. Brother Rick, there's a sister right up here in front of you. Hey, raise your hand there, sis. Uh, When I say verse number, that's the small number. So we're in Luke chapter 19, big number, verse 1, small number. And uh, we're going to be giving our attention to verses 1 to 27. Again, let me say welcome on behalf of the church family. Can't think of any place we'd rather you be than singing praises to God with us. And I want to have us do two quick things before we get into the text. Uh, One is, I've just been encouraged and ministered to singing this morning. Uh, Let's give God thanks for our brother Amos. I don't know where he went. Uh, Our brother Amos Evans is praying for us this morning. grateful for those who are singing and those who are playing uh, for us this morning. Also, uh, just to to celebrate, we have with us this morning very special guests who are joining us for the first time. They have new identities, right? It's not the witness protection program. It's called marriage. So Antonio and Jen uh, married a week ago last Saturday. Amen. Amen. It was a pleasure to celebrate with them and their families uh, last Saturday, and so we're so glad to see you this morning as Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Praise be to God. And we look forward to saying that about a lot of other people. I won't name them names right now, but we like marriages. And so 
Y'all get on it. Um, no, so, <laughs> Luke, chapter, Luke chapter 19. I better get to the Bible. Luke chapter 19. <laughs> We've been sort of in this series called, um, what we call it? Getting to know Jesus. <laughs> Getting to know Jesus. And uh, we've been wanting in Luke's gospel to get clearer and clearer pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's like and, and in this morning's text, what he's come to do. Uh, we've chosen this series with, with really a, a, that passion, that, that as we look into God's word and see there God revealed in the person of his son that we will not only get to know some things about him, but we would get to know him himself. And we'd be drawn into his presence with joy and with love and that we would share and and delight in his glory. And that's our ambition. When we look at Luke 19, 1 to 27 this morning, this is what we learn about Jesus. That he's the savior of the lost. Now, as so many things do about Jesus, that tells us something about him and it tells us something about us as well. He's the savior of the lost of the laws. And because he's the savior of the laws, he, he finds who he looks for. And when he finds who he looks for, he leaves us with two things. He leaves us, number one, with really this, this, this imperative that we do everything to see Jesus. That's point number one. We do everything to see Jesus. And number two, If we've seen him and come to know him and come to love him just as he has loved us, then number two, we do everything to serve Jesus. We do everything to serve Jesus. So we're here this morning. Do everything you can to see the Lord in this text. And let's go from here doing everything we can to serve the Lord of this text. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him 
and sent the delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, Yamina has been made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you should have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, Yamina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The Lord had a blessing to his word. First thing we want to see here is that we should do everything to see Jesus. Verse 1 begins the story. It's a well-known story in the Christian world, verses 1 to 10. We even have a, a children's song about it, don't we? You all know this song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree because Jesus he wanted to see. Excuse the tune. I can't carry a tune, but you know the song, right? It's a good part of Scripture to turn into a children's song because it teaches us tremendous things about Jesus and about why we should seek him. Notice the context in verse 1. After traveling for the last few chapters, Jesus has now finally entered into Jericho and he's passing through. Jericho is the large kind of, the last kind of major city that the Lord is to pass through before he gets to Jerusalem. Now he's prophesied several times in the gospel that when he reaches Jerusalem, he'll be betrayed, he'll be tried by sinful men, he'll be beaten and mocked and killed, and then three days later, he will rise again from the grave. So verse 1 is meant to put us in that frame of mind. He's drawing near now to his uh, betrayal and his crucifixion and his sacrifice, right? Well, it's in that context that Zacchaeus tries to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 2 to 4 introduce us to, to this man. And the effort that he went to. Verse 2 says he's a chief tax collector. And it also says that he was rich. Now both of those descriptions tell us something really about Zacchaeus' spiritual life. Uh, Regular tax collectors were hated in Israel because they worked for the Roman government, which was oppressing the Jewish people. 
Now, Zacchaeus wasn't a regular tax collector. Notice he was a chief tax collector, and he probably didn't get that position by working hard. He probably rose through the ranks by being more crooked than the rest of the tax collectors who often cheated people out of their earnings. So he was rich. You remember what the Lord says about rich people just over in the previous chapter? We looked at it last week. Look back at Luke chapter 18, verses 24 and 25. That rich man had come to Jesus asking how he might have eternal life. You remember he goes away sad because he had great riches. And, and remember what the Lord says there in verses 24 and 25. How difficult, difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus is a sinner and he is rich. He's the kind of guy you wouldn't expect to make it into the kingdom according to Jesus. Right? But verse 3 says, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, beloved, I think that's a a sentence with pregnant meaning. Not just simply seeking to see Jesus physically. I want to see who he is. I want to see who he was. They didn't know each other, hadn't met at this point. And perhaps the crowd had stirred Zacchaeus' interest Perhaps he'd heard something about this new rabbi who did miracles and and taught in ways that that astounded people, right? He's seeking Jesus, but there's a problem. Verse 3, but on account of the crowd, he could not see Jesus, that is, because he was small in stature. He was a short man. The pause there is to avoid all the short jokes. Zacchaeus was a short man and he he couldn't see over the people. So this rich man, who ordinarily would have been accustomed to people respecting him out of fear, who ordinarily might have been able to sort of command people to move out of his way because of his status in the Roman government, this rich man heists up his robe, runs ahead of the crowd, finds a sycamore tree, and climbs up in it. Now, we might be quite comfortable with seeing children playing in trees, you know, hanging on a limb, legs dangling, or maybe even hanging upside down by their legs. I mean, one of the great pastimes of growing up is climbing trees, right? We've been used to that. But a grown man with wealth and status running down ahead of the crowd, climbing up a tree to see Jesus short as all the other kids, right? That's my one short joke I could resist. But one. That we would not be expecting, would we? And so Jesus comes down the road and, and he sees this man sitting up in a tree. Zacchaeus has put himself where he can see Jesus, first of all, physically, where he can glimpse him. Glimpse him. But notice now what happens. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus saw Zacchaeus in the tree and he called Zacchaeus by name. They were unknown to each other, humanly speaking, but the Lord knows his name even before Zacchaeus knows him. And that's the case with all of us. And the Lord says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. By putting himself himself in position to see Jesus physically, Zacchaeus has now also put himself in position to see Jesus personally. 
and social it. Verse 6, he hurried and came down and, notice, received him joyfully. He receives Jesus' instruction. He receives Jesus' invitation. He comes down joyfully to meet with the Savior, which is the only way to respond when the Son of God calls you by name. Ain't no doubt in my mind some of you have been hearing the Savior call. You've been hearing his voice. You've been hearing him beckon you to come down quickly and to meet with him. Beloved, answer joyfully. Come quickly. Zacchaeus has gone from seeking to see who Jesus was to hurrying to having dinner with Jesus in his home. He's doing everything he can to know the Lord, isn't he? Verse 7. There's a problem. You see, crowds have mood swings. They had been traveling with Jesus, one presumes, excitedly, right? That's why there's a crowd, there's a a bustle and a clamor. But now they see Jesus calling down Zacchaeus from the tree to eat with him in his house. And notice what the text says in verse 7, they all grumbled. Notice what they said. He's going in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. See, the crowd seems to think that holiness means separating from sinners and shunning them. They seem to think that if Jesus was really a prophet or really a rabbi, then he should have nothing to do with Zacchaeus, who after all is a known sinner. Oh, beloved, be careful when we think we can assess somebody's worthiness to meet God. I mean, when when we feel someone is unworthy of God, we actually insult them and insult God too. When we think someone is unworthy of God, we throw them away long before Jesus would ever toss them away. And at the same time, when we think someone's unworthy of God, we ought to be concerned about our own worthiness. What's said about Zacchaeus is true about us all. All of us have sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Striking how often God, Jesus Christ, welcomes sinners and other sinners question him. We have that habit, don't we? See, a grumbling crowd is a dangerous crowd, beloved. The crowd's never trustworthy, but they're dangerous when they turn on you. And a grumbling crowd is a sinful crowd. Since grumbling against the Lord itself is a sin. They look a whole lot like Israel in the Old Testament. Moses leads the people out of bondage in Egypt and he leads them in the wilderness and God does miracle after miracle. And what do the people do? What does the crowd do? They grumble against Moses and Aaron. They grumble about manna from heaven. They grumble about quail from heaven. And God says to Moses, they don't grumble against you. They grumble against me. Oh, let us be careful of that particular sin, beloved, of complaining. It is against God who is in charge of all of our situations. Here they are replaying Israel's history, grumbling that Jesus should receive a sinner. Listen, beloved, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, uh, there's something you should know about us Christians. Not everyone is happy when they see you fellowshipping with Jesus even among the crowds that tend to follow Jesus. A true Christian will be. 
always happy to see someone come to Christ. That would be our greatest joy if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, is to have you say, how can I get to know Jesus? A true Christian would delight in that, but beware of those religious folks who seem to just be following Jesus in the crowd and at a distance, who don't quite know Jesus themselves, who grumble and complain that you're not worthy. Listen, beloved, we said this last week, don't let Christians keep you from Christ. Don't let the crowds block your way when it comes to coming to see and know Jesus. Never let grumbling people interrupt the chance you have of getting to know the Savior. So Zacchaeus puts himself in physical position to see Jesus. That leads him to a a personal opportunity to to get to know Jesus. And, And notice what happens from that opportunity in verses 8 to 10. Zacchaeus didn't stop with the crowds grumbling. And as a consequence, notice in verses 8 and 9, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of David. Now notice, ultimately, Zacchaeus gets saved because he put himself in a position to see and to know the Lord. The evidence of his salvation here in verse 8 is his conversion. Zacchaeus is repenting of his sin. He is turning away from his sin. And that repentance is taking a very practical manifestation. It's showing itself in a very practical way. Notice number one, he, he repents and he turns, not, he turns away from stinginess and, and grabbing and greediness. He turns out now in generosity. He says there, the first thing is, half of my possessions I give to the poor. Now, beloved, in a world where riches choke you to death and hold you and become idols, that's repentance. That's repentance. To turn away from an idolatrous desire for wealth and things and riches and to give what God has given you away to others. That's evidence of repentance. But notice the second sentence in verse 8 as well. Not only does he turn in generosity to give to the poor, but in repentance, he also turns back to his victims to give back to them. He says, now, if I'm taking anything, if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I will give back to them four times what I had taken. Now, what's striking about that is that comes right out of the Old Testament scriptures. That's a law that comes right out of God's commands to Israel. He is, in a sense, turning back to God's word and turning in his obedience to obedience to God. And that results in turning toward fair treatment of the people that he's wrong. It's a marvelous picture of repentance. And it's a marvelous demonstration of Luke 18, 27. Remember in the previous chapter? 24 and 25, Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. In verse 26, the disciples are like, well, who can be saved then? Verse 27 says, it's impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. Here we're seeing the demonstration of the all things are possible in the saving of rich people in Zacchaeus' life. 
It's a marvelous demonstration of how God can call people from all of their idols, from all the things that ensnare them and entrust them, from a lifetime of sin, from a lifetime of abusing privilege and position, and he can turn them to himself and make them new. And so Jesus pronounces in verse 9, this day salvation has come to this man's house. Notice what he says, how he describes it. Since he is a son of Abraham. Abraham was really the sort of father of Israel. The first Jew, so to speak. The one to whom God had made a promise that he would bless him and and build an entire nation. And that nation would be his people. And the thing that marked Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 forward, with all of his failures, his ups and the downs, the things that marks Abraham, what God remembers about Abraham, is that Abraham believed God. He had faith in God. He had faith in God's promise. And because of that faith, the Bible says, God counted Abraham as righteous. Not because of what he had done, not because of anything that he sought to do for God, but because he believed God. God counted him righteous. And so when he says now of Zacchaeus that he also is a son of Abraham, he's saying he's a son of faith. He has come to faith. And and that repentance and faith, that conversion, is the evidence that salvation has come to this man's house. This conversion, this transformation, this salvation, that's the heart of why Jesus has come. So verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is a good verse to memorize. If anybody ever asks you why did Jesus come, this is a good verse to to repeat. The Son of Man, it's the title that he uses for himself, has come to seek and to save the lost. What's marvelous is he didn't just come to look in on us, to simply seek us. He came also to gather us, to bring us back home. He came for the lost. Who is that? That's all of us in our sin. What is it to be lost? Don't ask your husband. He don't know. He ain't never been lost, right? (laughs) Just like me, I ain't never been lost. Well, you know when you're lost, but you usually don't know it till you're lost. That's the problem with it. You're driving along, your song come on, you're like, hey, that's my song, you know. You're rolling, you're bopping, you, you don't even notice you done sped up because that's your song, you know. I mean, you don't get two or three of your songs to come on back to back. I mean, you're just really cranking in, you know. You, you, and at some point, here's what happens. You go, oh, I'm lost. You didn't start out that way. You start out confidently driving some route, going to some distance. And there are two things that are true about being lost. You don't know where you're at, and you don't know how to get where you want to be. When you're really lost, you don't know where you are, and you don't know how to get to where you want to be. You don't even, even if where you want to be is where I came from. You can't go back, you can't go forward with any confidence, Right? That's what it is to be lost. And spiritually, we are all lost apart from Christ. We can't explain how we got to where we are in life. 
oh, there might be some major things. We go, okay, that was a turning point, and, and, and that got me off track. But, but you look up in your life sometime, and you go, how I get over here? And how I get back? And where is back? You can be lost for so long, you don't know where home is. And that's the problem with being lost spiritually. We can be so separated from God, and all of us are, that we can forget we were made to be with him. We were made to live in his presence. We were made for his kingdom. We were made to see him face to face and to know him. And we can be so utterly lost that we have no idea how to get back. Sin is a blinding thing. And lostness is a dark condition. It's a disorienting condition, beloved. And there's one more thing that sometimes happens when we're lost. You've seen it, ladies. He passed a turn and you saw it. And you said, I think that was our turn. (laughs) And guys, you know what happens next. You clench your teeth and double down, don't you? Always trying to tell me where to go. I know where I'm going. I'm good, I'm good. I'll let you know when we get there. You see us jam, come on, you start jamming. And then you look at me, you scared to say out loud, oh, I think I'm lost. (laughs) Pride will sometimes keep us from stopping the car and getting directions. Pride will keep us from listening to your very spouse who in the car with you and don't want to be lost with you. And pride will keep a sinner from listening to a Christian tell them the best news ever. That news begins with you're lost, admit it. But it ends with Christ has come to seek and save the lost. He's come looking for you. His eyes are on you. He wants you. And to prove his love for you, he has died for you. He he has sacrificed himself on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He came into the world to get you because you couldn't drive to heaven. You couldn't make it there on your own wisdom. You couldn't climb to heaven in your own strength. He had to come get you. You were so lost, you had to give a ping on your phone so somebody else could find you. And he did, he came, and he announced to the world his love, and he announced to the world his saving power, and he invited you to hurry down and to come dine with him. Don't lock your jaws in pride. Don't clench your teeth and keep going the same direction. Repent like Zacchaeus and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be found and saved and loved and kept from this day forever. And the home with God that you couldn't find, Christ will walk you to. He will deliver you safely into his glory. Beloved, if you're not here, or if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're not here, we need to talk. That's a, that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> if you're here and you're not a Christian, oh, we just, I mean, we, all we're really saying in all of our sermons and all of our singing and all of our prayers is we know how to get you home. Not because we weren't lost, but because Christ found us. 
we were in the car with you. We know how to get you home. And all we want for you is to hear this good news and to believe it. If you have questions about it, talk with us after the service. Our emails are on the back of the bulletin. Email us, but do everything you can to see Jesus, to come to know Jesus. He has come for you and he will save you. Now, if you're already a Christian, there are a couple things here that I want to point out in the way of application. One is an application to evangelism. That should be really clear for us, right? In verses 8, 9, and 10. If Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost, and we are those who follow Jesus, we are in the world then to seek and save the lost. We're in the world to tell others how to get home, how to meet the Savior. And listen, beloved, they must be sought. Did you see when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Come down, for I must go to your house today. Why must? Why not I would like to? Or if it's okay? Well, it's because he understood his mission to, to drive him, really. It wasn't, wasn't an option. It was how he was obeying his father. There was a, a mustness, a necessity to it. And that same must falls on us to go into the world to seek and save the lost. And Anacostia River Church, we are meant to do that, as our mission statement says, from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. It's why we exist and why we exist in this neighborhood. You know, really, if, if we're not going to go and seek our neighbors with the gospel, we don't really need to be in the neighborhood. If it's only about a preaching point to hear a sermon, well, let's call it a wrap and just do it all online. Now, if, if, if we're not going to risk anything to meet our neighbors and to talk with them, then, yeah, let's just move further and further out into the suburbs, further and further away from each other, and just go ahead and, you know, call it, call it a day. No, man, we are in the neighborhood, for the neighborhood. We're different from the neighborhood in order to reach out to the neighborhood. We are here to make real-life flesh-and-blood contact with people made in the image of God that tell them how to get home. We must do that. That falls upon us. And it's our joy to do it. It's our privilege to do it. Let's be faithful in that. Let me make one other application. Verse 8 is remarkable because it also teaches us that a, a converted man is a just man. A converted man is a just man. Why do I say that? Well, we see two forms of justice in verse 8. First, there is justice in the form of redistribution of wealth. When, when my man says, listen, half my goods I give to the poor, what's happening there? But redistribution. And why the poor? Why not half my goods I give to my buddies? I give to other rich guys. Well, it's because God from beginning to end in this book blesses people and says, I bless you to be a blessing. And he turns people not toward their friends who are wealthy, but he turns people to the poor and the outcasts and the marginalized. You remember the parable of the man who had a banquet and he sent out and invited his friends to come to the banquet? And none of his friends would come. One guy said, man, I just got married. Another guy said, hey, I just bought a field. And another guy said, man, I got some new cattle. Let me tend to all that. What does the man say? Go into the highways and the hedges. Go out among the poor, those who were not invited, and call them in. There's something about genuine conversion that turns us out onto the world and those in need with, gener with generosity. 
And this man, unlike the rich young ruler, he doesn't go away sad. He rejoices with Christ, and that frees him to give up half of all he has. There's redistribution in this text. But notice also in verse 8, there's another kind of justice, and that's restitution. We mentioned this before. He repays to his victims fourfold what he had taken from them. So he's gone from being a lawbreaker to a law keeper. Repentance isn't complete until there is justice given to those who've sinned against us. We can't say that we are repentant and coming to Christ if we're going to leave undone, unaddressed, the wrong that we've been doing to people. All right? No, repentance, this turning to Christ includes reconciliation and restitution with those we have harmed. I draw this out because in our day, in this very day where we hear so much about justice, I just want to make it clear that the surest way to see justice among men is to see men converted and to teach them what God requires. And what does God require? Micah 6 eight. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Zacchaeus is a short little happy picture of that. Doing justice and loving kind. Okay, that was the second short joke. All right. That wasn't even a joke. That was a reference. All right. Zacchaeus does everything he can to see Jesus. And when he meets with the Lord, he actually becomes a brand new, born again, transformed man through faith in Christ. Do everything you can to see Jesus. Number two, do everything you can to serve Jesus. That's what we see in verses 11 to 27. When they heard these things, they made two mistakes, really, in their thinking. We see them in verse 11. It seems that they forgot they were were headed to Jerusalem. Jesus started doing all this talk in verse 9 and 10 about this man being saved and coming to seek and save the lost, and they moved pretty quickly to, oh, man, the kingdom must be here in a few moments. They forget that they're going to Jerusalem. They forget about the cross. Forget about the suffering. Verse 11, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And that's the way of men too, isn't it? They want to skip the cross and get right to the crown. They want to skip the suffering and get right to the glory. But first comes suffering, then comes glory. And that's why we're told Jesus tells this parable. And the parable, notice the the people in the parable in verses 12 to 14. There are three sets of characters here. Verse 12, there's the nobleman. He goes off into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he's going to return. And the nobleman in this parable represents Jesus. He was going to Jerusalem where he would be killed, and and he would rise three days later and ascend into heaven, and he's going to receive his kingdom from his father in glory. But he was coming back then for his people. Then there are the ten servants in verse 13. Those are, those are the disciples, really, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They receive a mina, a coin, from the Lord. And they're supposed to engage in business with that coin until the nobleman, until the Lord, returns. In other words, the servants and the disciples are to be good stewards for the Lord, serving him until he comes back. Then there's the final folks in this, in this thing, the, the citizens, see them in verse 14. Notice, they hated him and sent the delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to to reign over us. Uh, Somehow they think that 
choosing a king of glory is going to be done in a brokered convention, right? They got a delegation that they're sending to the, to the party and they want to argue against him. They hate and they rebel against him. And these citizens represent all of sinful humanity apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, who in their sin are in active rebellion against him and who in their sin are attempting to be their own lords. And notice now the problem in the parable, verses 15 to 24. Notice now verse 15, he fast forwards in the story. The nobleman has returned from the far country and he has returned having received the kingdom. I don't care what we say. I don't care what we do. I don't care what citizens on a protest against the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back with his kingdom. And so this nobleman comes back with his kingdom And the first thing he does is he calls his servants to him to give an account for how they have conducted his business. It's as though we're getting an illustration of 1 Peter 4, 17, where Peter says there that the judgment will begin at the household of God. So he starts with his servants. And he he demonstrates that we all have to give an account for what we do with our mina, with our coin. It really symbolizes our whole selves and All the gifts and the opportunities and the abilities and the resources that the Lord has given us. We've got business to do, and that business is defined back in verse 10. We've got business to do to seek and to save the laws. So in what way are we stewarding all that we are and all that we have in order to pursue those who are lost apart from Christ and to see them saved through the gospel of Christ? And we'll have to give an account for that. So... Servant, verses 16 to 17, he turned his mina into 10. And because of that, he's going to rule over 10 cities. That's the great reward, right? Let's not miss that, that a life of serving Christ is a eternally rewarded life. You may not see it now, but when he comes in his kingdom, you'll see it gloriously. The reward is really disproportional to the investment, isn't it? He took that mina He invested that mina, and the Lord grew it ten times the amount. The second servant comes in verses 18 and 19. You see a very similar thing there, right? He he says, here's my mina and five more to go with it. So he gets a a 500 sort of times return, and he rules over, over five cities. And that ruling over cities is just a picture of us ruling together with Christ in his kingdom. But notice now that another servant in verse 20. That servant came with excuses rather than profit. That servant had put the money in a handkerchief and hid it. Verse 21 says this servant did that because he was afraid of the nobleman. So here you have the curious thing, which sometimes happens, of having a disciple who's thinking hard thoughts about his Lord. Think about our own lives sometimes how we come to think that God has done us a hard thing. And then we come to sort of fear him in that way. This servant is called wicked because he's thinking these hard thoughts about God, first of all, that, or about the nobleman. First of all, the nobleman is a severe man. And, and secondly, that the nobleman reaps where he does not sow. That's how he understands this severity. In his fear, he thought his excuse might be enough to justify his failure to steward well what the nobleman had entrusted to him. But the problem is, he didn't act on what he knew about God. He didn't act on what he knew 
about God. Look at verses 22 and 23. The nobleman says he would use his own words against him. He says, basically, if you knew those things about me when when you should have used what I gave you to make more, that's the consequence. If you knew I was like that, you should have acted on that knowledge of me. He doesn't even challenge the, the accuracy of his knowledge. Jesus says, basically, you're not living out your theology. You're not walking according to your doctrine. You're confessing something about me, but not living in light of it. And all of us do that inconsistently, beloved. All of us do that inconsistently. Now his point here is, even with your impartial knowledge, or your partial knowledge, excuse me, you should have acted. You should have acted. There won't be a sufficient excuse for not being a good steward of my gift to you. He says there, why didn't you even make a safe investment, like deposit the money in the bank and draw 2% interest, right? See, God expects us to use what he gives us to make more for his kingdom. God's plan for multiplying his kingdom is you and me and the stewardship of what he's entrusted to us. And there's no acceptable excuse for not, for not acting on the truth we know about God. That very truth will condemn us. And notice, it's not that we're responsible for truths we don't know. It's what we do with what we do know. Someone once said, I'm not troubled by the parts of the Bible that I don't understand. I'm troubled by the parts of the Bible I do understand. Uh, That person knew that there were some things that were just clear in the Bible. And the very clarity obligated them obligated him to believe it and to do it. So whatever truth we know about God, we're responsible for that truth before God. And even if we don't like the truth or it seems unpleasant to us, like this servant, we must steward it by acting on it to make a profit for the kingdom. Notice verse 24, what happens to the third servant. And he said to those who stood by, take the meaning from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. Instead of inheriting cities to rule, he loses the cities and he loses his stewardship. He himself is not lost, but all that he could have had as a reward in the kingdom is taken away. So let me flip this. And we're sort of seeing this sort of negative statement. Let me sort of flip it positively. Live for the reward of heaven. Live for the promise of glory. God calls us to live for a reward that we cannot imagine. What will it be to rule with Christ? To sit on thrones that he prepares for his people over over cities. He's trying to give us a picture of us sharing in that authority and greatness and splendor and majesty and wonder and that sublime and indescribable power that is his. We are going to be in that glory, sharing in that glory, ruling with Christ. And he's saying, I've given you a little bit now. Just use that little bit and watch what I turn it into. And watch what great things you will rule over in my kingdom if you would simply be faithful with the little bit I give you. It's a wonderful enticement to serve Jesus until we see Jesus. To do everything we can to serve him until he comes when we will hear the well done and share in his reward. 
You want a reason to get up tomorrow? How about that reason being an eternal kingdom? Of glory with Christ. Of sharing in the wonder of his power and his love. Get up tomorrow. Go to work tomorrow. Meet with Christ. Speak of Christ. Because with that little bitty mina that we have, he's going to take it and multiply it and make it ten and grant us a place in his kingdom. Serve Jesus until you see Jesus. Notice the philosophy of this parable as we close. Verses, verse 25 to 27 there. He takes that one mina from that man who had hidden it in a handkerchief and gives it to the man with ten. In verse 25, all of us cry out, wait a minute now. <laughs> you know, well, he got ten. <laughs> Why brother can't get six? Let me have that, you know. <laughs> right? Verse 20, y'all know that's how y'all do, <laughs> right? Me too. Verse 26, the nobleman responds and says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's the philosophy of this, of this parable in so many words. In the kingdom of God, faithfulness is rewarded. That's what the Lord means by everyone who has. He's not, he's not talking as we sometimes do about the haves and the have-nots. That's not the issue there. The one who has in this text is the one who has been faithful. The one who has not is the one who has not been faithful even with what he had in his possessions. And so the one who has will be rewarded while the one who has not, well, he will have that even taken away. Now, it's better to be a doorkeeper in the household of the Lord than to be on the outside. But ain't no reason to live like that. Now, when we can live to be those who would be rewarded. The faithful are rewarded, but notice also verse 27, the wicked are judged. Verse 27 comes back to the citizens. The nobleman had not forgotten them. Those who rebelled against him and sent the delegation to oppose his rule. They're left here to the very end of this parable. They are not forgotten. And when the judgment of his followers is complete, his servants is complete, then the judgment of the haters begin. Haters going to hate, but haters going to be judged too. They are slaughtered, the text says, before the king. And that is such a violent imagery, isn't it? But it is nothing compared to the judgment of hell. The Lord is reaching for a, a, a graphic image in order to help us to understand just how terrible the consequences of lostness is. The suffering of hell is unending. It is terrible. It is the removal of every grace, every kindness, every goodness, every love of God. And the replacing of all that's good with his anger and fury and judgment. The hell, those in hell wish they could be slaughtered and have it over with. They really do. But they have sinned against an infinite God and they will pay an infinite penalty. 
They have rebelled against the one king of the universe. And if nothing else, the constant reminder of his kingship and rule will be agony to their soul. Listen, beloved. There is no good reason to rebel against Jesus. Can you think of one, a good reason? To rebel against a God who gave his life to save you from hell and to love you forever? Rebellion only ends in destruction. There's no good reason to rebel against Jesus, but there is every reason to believe in him and to follow him and to serve him. See, faith ends, if you can say it ends, in eternal life and an everlasting kingdom. And so all of us who are here who are not yet Christians, really we should take the page out of Zacchaeus' book and we should repent of sin and we should place our faith in Jesus Christ. And then we will receive glory and honor as we reign together with him. That's the philosophy of this chapter. That's the philosophy of the Christian life. And beloved, there's no better way to live. In fact, this is the only way that can properly be called living. Everything else is a kind of death. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall live. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for the call to repent, which to us in our sins feels like a certain kind of death, and it is, oh Lord, repentance is death to death itself, the spiritual death of living apart from you, genuine repentance of turning to you in faith, oh Lord, we praise you that it leads to life, not to more duty as to legalistic obedience, but but life, eternal life, spiritual life, through the power of your resurrection and the working of your spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that even right now you would help us all to hear the call to repentance as a call to life. And that you would grant the grace, grant grace to repent. To those who are trying to see Jesus and don't yet know them, bring them to him as the savior of the lost. Let them acknowledge their lostness and let them call upon the Lord to come rescue them. And those who have heard that call and called upon Christ and have believed, help us to keep repenting, to keep turning to him and to keep receiving grace and mercy and forgiveness and love, just as you promised, that we might go on secure in the knowledge that you have loved us and saved us. Oh Lord, help us, we pray to live for you, to live serving you until you come, that we might, Lord, present to you 10 minas more, multiplying your kingdom and enjoying your glory. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.